Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Our ancestors came from a place in which the cultures were really grounded in nature. So what happened? Why are we incarcerated in these neighborhoods and trapped? And don't we have a birthright to have a relationship with the earth? It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. Scientists tell us that concern with the environment will no longer be just one of many issues in this new century. It will move to center stage. It will become the context of everything, of our lives, our businesses, our politics. We are, in fact, moving from the information age to the age of biology. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we salute the Bioneers, the biological pioneers who are working with nature to heal nature, honoring both traditional native wisdom and modern scientific knowledge, restoring the earth by changing the world. Richard Deertrack of Taos Pueblo has said that from the point of view of a plant, all people must look pretty much the same. The Human Genome Project, which analyzed human genetic makeup across all the peoples of the world, came to a similar conclusion. There is no significant genetic difference among the races of the world. Yet race has been and still is a corrosive source of conflict, violence, tragedy, and injustice among peoples the world over. Often, race also marks the dividing line for the NIMBY syndrome, not in my backyard. Studies have shown it is usually communities of color whose backyards and front yards suffer the most extreme environmental contamination as sites for toxic dumps and the worst polluting industries. Yet people of color and their allies are developing powerfully effective strategies to attain environmental justice. Their examples light the way for how all people can restore the environment and our communities. Join us for the next half hour as we look at Race and Place, a Birthright to Creation, with Greg Watson, environmental planner and organizer, educator and changemaker Carl Anthony, and physician and environmental health advocate Marta Arguello. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Environmental injustice takes many forms. Worldwide, almost half of us today live in cities, a whopping 2.8 billion people. Many cities are sharply divided along racial lines, and urban renewal usually means urban removal, removing communities of color in low-income neighborhoods. City planners' efforts to spruce up an urban neighborhood can be devastating to those who live there. This is one face of environmental injustice. I think part of the problem we've had with city planning is that, that planners base a lot of their actions on theory and they're sort of this almost self-fulfilling prophecy that we're going to make sure that our theories are upheld. Greg Watson has never shied away from the really big and tractable issues, so it's hardly surprising that he's trekking the path to urban restoration. He's a true public servant with an extraordinarily varied career that ranges from teaching environmental science to directing farm and wildlife conservation programs, heading a department of agriculture, and serving some of the most leading-edge environmental education and design institutions. But one of his greatest accomplishments was as executive director of the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, one of the most innovative inner-city revitalization efforts anywhere. On Dudley Street, gentrification and the threat of urban removal became a remarkable story of race, place, and environmental justice. 
Greg Watson spoke at a recent Bioneers conference. The most interesting thing about the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative was the, the courage that folks had to pursue some dreams and visions. And rather than say we're going to base these on theory, they said we're going to put into practice some ideals and then we're going to derive the theory from practice. And what I want to do is talk about what some of those theories and what some of those principles are derived from a community that really put itself on the line to do some very groundbreaking, path-breaking work. Massachusetts went through a great period of economic vitality and renewal. The Fannel Hall marketplace revitalization happening throughout parts of the city of Boston. Yet there were still many pockets of poverty, injustice that existed. And this polarization obviously created a great deal of political tension that, that manifested itself in many different ways, including court-ordered busing and forced busing and all. Um, the lower-income communities of Boston, which really is sort of Boston's heart and soul. It's interesting, though, if you take a look and until very recently, any guides, visitors' guides, online guides to the city of Boston, you never saw these areas. They literally were black holes. You could, you could look at the, the, the T schedule, you could look at the T map, and it would tell you how to get to one place to another, but the orange line was conspicuously absent from most of those visitors' guides because the orange line took you through Roxbury, Mattapan, and Dorchester. So, again, there's been a sort of a vicious pattern that, that has sort of developed around cities, and um, again, in many of the communities, and particularly the community we're talking about here, you did have uh, people of color immigrating to cities and into many neighborhoods. And in case of in Boston, it was a city of a, a very blue-collar, Irish neighborhood, very strong, very together. But as people of color did immigrate in, you got white flight to the suburbs. With the white flight, you had disinvestment. The businesses left. Banks said, you know, we're no longer, again, this is not a wise or a prudent investment for us to take. Um, you had speculation that resulted from a number of things. I'll get to that in, in a little bit. Um, you had arson for profit and devastation. And basically, when you did have the, the white flight, you did have folks leaving, and you had speculators come in and buy up land and buy up property waiting for urban renewal. And let me just get to this, because again, this led to urban renewal projects that targeted the slums. The west end of Boston was a very strong community, many European immigrants, um, that was targeted for urban renewal right before Roxbury. The city took over the property by eminent domain and forced folks out and rebuilt it. But as they did rebuild it, what you got was displacement. The folks who lived there before were no longer able to live there, and they had to go well, who knows where, but they were forced out. So what many folks saw was that you had this, this gentrification, but it led to displacement. And most of your professional planners will tell you that that's just too bad. It's inevitable. Once you start to rebuild and you redevelop, you have gentrification. Displacement is one of those unavoidable, inevitable, unfortunate consequences. And that's what the professional planners say. And we'll get to this a little later. That's not what the folks at Dudley Street said. They said, wait, you know, that's according to theory. Let's see if we can turn theory on its head. The bottom line is what urban renewal for a lot of folks meant poor folk removal. It was not something that was going to benefit the folks who, who lived there, the people that, that claimed this a community. It was really something that was geared to try to take that black hole and remove it and replace it with, quote, acceptable folks so that we can now put Roxbury and Mattapan back on, on the map. The road from urban renewal and poor folk removal to the revitalization of an inner-city, sustainable community was very challenging. But Greg Watson and the people of Dudley Street found that they had an important ally. The ally was the land itself. 
the area was reduced to 1,300 vacant lots, abandoned lots. You could stand in the middle of Roxbury in the mid-'70s, stand in the middle, take a look around, and you wouldn't see a building standing. Uh, most of these are considered brownfields because that, that abandonment led to illegal dumping. It was a dumping site, 51 hazardous waste sites. Incredible, just a, a wasteland as far as the city of Boston is concerned. With the 1,300 abandoned lots, you can only imagine folks on their way to the dump site would pass through the neighborhood. They were going to go to dump their trash and, and pay a tipping fee, and they would see these vacant lots and say to themselves, why would I do that? Why pay a fee when it clearly here's a neglected neighborhood? They drove back, cut back in the middle of the night, and just start to dump everything, sides of beef, old cars, and the place became a sty and became a very, very dangerous situation in terms of the, the health for the people living there. But um, eventually people said, we're not going to take anymore. They organized and organizing around, you know, no more funk, no more junk, but take a stand and own the land. And they did, in fact, take back the land and transformed it as part of their overall revitalization strategy into affordable housing, parks, urban gardens, and other public places. The key to this, the key was their vision and their insightfulness and their courage to say, we need tools. And one of the tools they needed, they had the plan, they had the vision, but in many cases, you've got the plan, you've got the vision, that's all well and good. But what happens to that? Well, it sits on someone's coffee table or on a, in a filing cabinet because you can't implement it. You need some resources. And what's the most important resource in terms of implementing that plan for this community? It was the land. How do we get some control over the land? Absentee, abandoned you know, landowners, they're gone. They're waiting perhaps for things to really turn full circle where finally people would give up. Maybe urban renewal would come into play again, and therefore they could recoup their money. So they just let the land sit. And it continued to pile up. Community got together and said, we want controlled land. How do we do it? They consulted with lawyers, and the idea came up to them, you, the community, should grab the power and obtain the power of eminent domain over all abandoned parcels in your neighborhood. The power of eminent domain. The long and short of it is they got that power. The most important part of this story is not that they got it, but that they went after it. They asked for it. They did the impossible. People kept saying to them, you're crazy. No nonprofit organization, nonprofit community-based organization in the country has ever done that. Well, the Community Land Trust gave the community control over the land, and they put restrictions on the land. When new homes were built, these are beautiful homes, but there's a restriction that the community placed on the uh, resale value of the homes, and it was limited to only a half a percent a year for 10 years. So they put, the, and, and the banks balked at that. They said, you're crazy, you'll never sell the homes. I mean, how, who's going to buy a home that's got that kind of restriction? And what the community said, the people that will buy the homes are the people who want to live here. And that's what happened. And all of those homes, all of them have been sold. Been, and in many cases, it's people who used to live there and now have the ability to come back home to come back home. It's a, it's a place. This was not just, you know, if you look at all the literature of Dudley Street and you look at what they did, you will almost never see reference. You'll never see a reference to real estate. You'll see land. And land, real source of wealth, in addition to know-how. So it's a, it's a very different mindset. And it's a mindset, once again, that the top-down planners don't have. They didn't understand it. The banks didn't understand it until we said, you're not just buying, they're not just buying a house, they're buying a community or they're investing in a community, and that's why we think they'll come. And again, that's proven to, to be the case. 
The conventional wisdom says you can't have development without displacement. Dudley Street shows that you can. Other, but that then creates the groundwork and the environment to do some of the things, the experimental and innovative and exciting things that we've all talked about and know are going to be a critical part of the sustainable urban, or well, just a sustainable society. Uh, promoting local economies through things like local currency, urban agriculture. This is a community-based urban initiative where folks, we now have two and a half acres in agriculture, two and a half acres of, of food production. Um, it's that site that had the, uh, the town common that was a part of the revitalization uh, strategy where we took that, that brownfield and re rebuilt it. It's now the site of the, of the farmer's market that meets there every, uh, during the growing season uh, every Thursday, and it's become sort of a social scene. It's very exciting. And we've crossed cultural lines. I mean, everybody's into urban agriculture, in, into growing food, and it's become a sort of a, a very exciting opportunity. Now, we're also extending our growing season beyond what we can grow outside. This is, shows you the sign of the Brook Avenue Garage, a brownfield. It's, it's a commercial garage that's been abandoned for a number of years. It is now being, it has been torn down. And at that site, 10,000 square feet, uh, we use environmental supplemental funds from the EPA. It's going to be a community greenhouse. And this is part of the revitalization that shows what, in fact, you can do. Greg Watson, turning theories of urban development inside out with on-the-street realities of social, economic, and environmental justice. Dudley Street is back on the map in Boston and is serving as a model for the revitalization of other urban communities. When we return, Carl Anthony of the Ford Foundation and Marta Arguello of Physicians for Social Responsibility. I'm Neil Harvey. This is Race in Place, a birthright to creation. You're listening to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. The environment does not heed borders on a map. As the pioneers point out, life is all connected, and what happens in any one place will ultimately reach all of us. Carl Anthony suggests that what often happens first to people of color who are relegated to living in some of the most poisoned and damaged landscapes is an early warning signal to us all. Anthony is an urban architect and founder of Earth Island Institute's Urban Habitat Program, which promotes multicultural environmental leadership in San Francisco, California. He is currently a senior program officer at the Ford Foundation, where he directs its Sustainable Metropolitan Communities Initiative. Carl Anthony spoke at the Bioneers Conference. Most of us are probably familiar with the idea of the canary in the mine. The canary goes down, and the, if the canary comes up alive, then people think it's okay, safe to go down into the mine and then some people get mad at the canary you know he comes up sick and they say well that's something's wrong with the canary let's beat him up and they, they don't realize that actually that there's a sacrificial process going on here and, and in some ways race functions that way in our society that 
the, the people who are most expendable, the people who we can afford to have them be invisible, in a sense, their, their lives can potentially take on extra meaning because they can give us an indication of where we're all headed. And I, I do think that race has actually served this purpose in this country from the very beginning. It created an illusion among a certain set of people that they were actually privileged and that they were immune from all these issues. And this is a very deep, ingrained challenge to our consciousness in this country. And one of the contributions I think that the environmental movement potentially can make to African-American culture, has not necessarily made it, but can, is it can raise our consciousness about our entitlement to creation. Our ancestors came from a place in which the cultures were really grounded in nature and grounded in understanding of the heavens and the stars and our relationship to the animals and all these things. So what happened? Why are we incarcerated in these neighborhoods and trapped? And don't we have a birthright to have a relationship with the earth? So, so one of the contributions of this process and, and potential reinvigoration of the environmental movement is a much deeper sense of what environmental justice means, not just for black people, not just for black people, but for everybody. You know, when I think about the, the great migration of black people who came from the South, you know, and my, gen my family uh, came maybe a generation and a half ago. Up until 1950, most of the black people in this country were rural people and now they're the most urbanized people in the country. But I would venture to say that most of the people in this audience have ancestors who came here under stress, uprooted from someplace. And this relates very much to the migrations that are going on all around the world. So, so when we start looking at our experience and asking the question of being pushed off of the land, and we can see how it relates to the Native American experience of being pushed off the land, how it relates to the experience of the Irish, and the Jewish people who came here, and how it relates to people from Central America and from all over the world. So you begin to see that there's a complex of issues that we need to grapple with that we have not grappled with in the environmental movement that touch us all personally. So I think the point of seeing the African-American experience, the Latino experience, the Native American or Asian-American Pacific Islander experience as an indicator as a diagnostic tool to understand what is happening to us all. And so I think that is a really important point. Carl Anthony. As Anthony suggests, because communities of color are living on the front lines of environmental injustice, the solutions they're developing have universal implications for all people. That has certainly been the case with the work of Marta Arguello, a physician in Los Angeles. Born in Nicaragua, she grew up in L.A. around gangs and violence. She emerged as an organizer and went on to play a key role in helping implement one of the country's best integrated pest management programs to reduce and eliminate the use of toxic chemicals in the L.A. Unified School District. To do so, she employed the precautionary principle, a principle which echoes Grandma's time-worn wisdom of better safe than sorry and an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Some call it the duh principle. Speaking at the Bioneers Conference, Arguello recalled her journey into environmental justice. 
I came to doing environmental work after listening to a talk about breast milk contamination. I had been a health advocate and worked very hard with women with breast cancer. Um, and I was having a growing sense of disquiet, and in Spanish it's inquietud, um, which is sort of restlessness, about telling younger and younger women or trying to explain to younger and younger women why they were getting breast cancer, why 25-year-old African-American women were getting breast cancer that seemed so virulent. I had an epiphany and a moment that changed my life and that put all the things and the strings of my life and the experiences from being from a gang, going to UCLA, working in Nicaragua for the Sandinista government, all of those things suddenly came together in a purpose. And luckily I came to doing environmental work and found a job very quickly with Physicians for Social Responsibility. And one of the first things that was being talked about as I came was this precautionary principle. And it was, well, duh, that's as a, as a person who's been talking about prevention, this is how it should be. Uh, what we did in L.A. is take the duh principle to ah. This is how it's done. How it's done is uh, there was a group of very forward-thinking community folks and a doctor from our organization who decided to put the precautionary principle in the preamble of this new integrated pest management policy. And it basically stated, you know, in the absence of scientific certainty, we should still act to prevent harm. It institutionalized several other key factors of the precautionary principle. One is democratic participation. So affected people will sit at the table and make decisions along with the district staff. Uh, so there was parents and community members, a physician, a nurse, representatives from the environmental community. Uh, when we first started talking about the principle, people thought, well, that's a really nice theory. But what is it really? Well, for a school district struggling with its pesticide use problem, it means that we look at the list of products that they're using. 86% of the school districts in California were using known reproductive toxins, known developmental toxins, and known carcinogens. We looked at the 135 products that the district had been using and said, is it a known reproductive toxin? Is it a possible reproductive toxin? Is it a known carcinogen or possible carcinogen? Is it a developmental toxin or a neurological toxin? If it is known or probable or not known, it is not on our approved list. We went from an approved list of 134, many highly toxic chemicals, to 32 products. That is how the precautionary principle works on the street. The other element is the promotion of alternatives and not the squashing of science and forward thinking, but it, how it helps it grow and how it helped a group of 10 people, parents, community members, environmentalists, spray, former spray jockeys, facilities and gardeners, sit down at a table and figure out how best to deal with our weed problem without using Roundup. Everything from bringing goats into the district to steam machines to how we can make those steamers work better on large areas of land. So again, it is the coupling of innovation and having to use alternatives that has made that policy work. It, and we work very hard. It's not perfect. We are constantly on, on guard because institutions move slowly. And when left to their own devices, revert to what they know. And what they know is to spray. And I'll, I'll give you again the story of how this all came to be in Los Angeles. There was a, a mother dropping off her children to school and she saw two men in hazmat units spraying right near the stairs and her children walked through the mist of the pesticide and one of them, Brandon, turned around and said, Mommy, it really tastes awful. And Rabina, being another very unreasonable woman, called many people, Pesticide Watch and other organizations, and that was the birth of that policy. And it took a year 
from the time that our children were sprayed to the time the policy passed. It's been three years now. And one of the strongest things that we've had to hold over the district is the fact that now the district staff, including former spray jockeys, are recognized across the country for the cutting-edge work that they've done. And again, this is the power of implementing the precautionary principle. In early 2002, Marta Arguello helped organize one of the first precautionary principle workshops on the West Coast. She says it was one of the most ethnically diverse events anyone had ever seen in Los Angeles. Several months after that precautionary workshop, California passed a law that every department in the state's EPA had to review its policies and procedures to ensure strategies and means for implementing environmental justice policies that are fair to all communities, regardless of race and income. As part of the process, an ongoing panel was convened to review all plans. It was composed of experts, industry representatives, and above all, community people who shared the human truth of their daily realities. LaDonna, who works and lives in Oakland, tearfully testifying what's happening in her community and saying what happened to her when she first moved into her new house that she was happy to be living in and broke the dirt and her daughter becoming ill in a bloody nose from whatever fumes came out of that dirt to her sister dying, to her mother's illness, to the day that her children and her friends were playing outside and ran in screaming and said, Mommy, look, there's a frog with three legs. And so I said to the folks, the regulators, these are the early warning systems that must be implemented as part of precaution. You have not been listening to the stories of these people. These people are living the burden of proof in ways that are extremely unjust. And our policies have to change. Marta Arguello's introduction of the precautionary principle and the reduction of pesticide use in the Los Angeles Unified School District. The success of Greg Watson and the residents of the Dudley Street neighborhood in Boston to restore the environment and revivify their community. And Carl Anthony's widening the frame of environmental justice. These are pioneers. From the point of view of the planet, people must look pretty much the same. The voices singing for justice, health, and respect for all life are coming from people of all colors. Perhaps the light coming from these communities of color is finally revealing that reverence for the earth, which is all of us, goes deeper than the surface of our skin. Race in Place, a birthright to creation. To find out more about the work and writing of Greg Watson, Carl Anthony, Marta Arguello, and all of the participants in this series, and to find out more about the annual Bioneers Conference, call Bioneers toll-free at 1-877-246-6337. That's 1-877-BIONEER. Or visit the Bioneers website at bioneers.org. To become a member of the Bioneers or to buy a cassette tape, CD, or transcript of this program, please call toll-free 1-877-BIONEER. That's 1-877-246-6337. To read more about the work of the Bioneers, check out the Bioneers Anthology book series, including Ecological Medicine, Healing the Earth, Healing Ourselves, and Nature's Operating Instructions, The True Biotechnologies, published by Sierra Club Books. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel and Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Diane Solomon. Associate Producer, Stephanie Welch. Distribution and Promotion, WFMT Radio Network. 
Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko Disc label. Additional music was made available by Karuna Music Triloka Records at www.triloka.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in restoring the environment by changing the world. This is program number 0804.